Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Uh, this is David. I am your host and glad to be here again today. And I have the privilege to speak with someone who is at the forefront of innovation and school safety. This podcast is of incredible importance to everyone, but especially educators or parents of the 50 million children that attend school in America each day. Joe Bruzes is the CEO of Sprigio, the nation's leader in online reporting systems for safety threats bullying, incidents, and self-harm. He's also taught graduate courses at UC Santa Barbara, authored the book, A Parent's Guide to the Middle Years, which is available on Amazon. As a former school administrator and current parent of two teens, he's covered all the bases when it comes to schools and safety. In the fall of 2016, Joe invited a dozen of America's top K-12 school leaders to a special focus group action summit. It was called Westlake. He's going to talk about that event and what it meant for scripting an agenda for positive change in school safety for schools across the country. I've known Joe since 2011 when I co-founded one of the Midwest's largest school behavior conferences. Joe attended and he presented at that event. I regard Joe to be a wonderful friend as well as a professional colleague. We've stayed in contact, and I serve as a consultant to Joe's company, primarily focusing on areas of non-discrimination legislation and user interface. For full disclosure, I'm not compensated by Sprigio, and this interview will focus on the Westlake Summit and the courage of Joe and that team of educational risk takers to step forward with an agenda for safety that truly serves the best interest of students. So, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, David. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you. Uh, Joe is coming to us from Santa Barbara and had shared it is unusually cool there. Uh, today, I think 40 degrees, you said, for a, for a high, right? And I've come to believe that the word cool or cold, just like warm or hot, is completely subjective, right? So any folks that are in the Midwest or back East that just heard you say cold and 40 degrees in the same sentence are probably laughing now. But from a Southern California standpoint, mighty chilly. I have a quick funny story to share. We had four inches of snow yesterday, and I went out with a snowblower to clear off my driveway, and all of a sudden I started to hear this this noise in the baler, you know, that kicks out the snow. And it, it took about uh, a second to realize I had sucked up an extension cord that I had run along the side of my driveway to power some of my, my Christmas lights. And... Uh, it took me a solid two hours uh, with uh, snips and, and dismantling the, the baler to get this, this cord up, <laughs> but everything's okay. So, <laughs> Yeah, see, those are just those are challenges, challenges we just don't have in Southern California. Yeah, yeah so, you know, um, well, well, Joe, first tell us about yourself and tell us about Sprigio. Absolutely. Uh, so the vision that we have at Sprigio is that all kids should feel safe when they show up at school every day. And that vision is really what drives us, um, drives how we connect with schools, how we connect with kids and teens, administrators, all the way up the ladder. And it also drives a lot of what we do with respect to services, uh, the gatherings that we put together. You mentioned the Westlake, and we'll talk more about that. And for me personally and professionally, it was kind of an evolution that started with being a classroom teacher some years ago, uh, working with upper elementary and middle school kids and recognizing that 
when kids showed up and they felt physically and emotionally safe, they were more likely to engage and take risks and learn more. So it really became just kind of a logical next step for me that when I left the classroom, I moved into administration. And now we're looking at, of course, the entire school and then at a district level and then starting to work with teacher education programs. So that's was kind of the breadth of my professional experience with respect to education. And then when I moved into the role of CEO and founder at Spurgio, I took that kind of core knowledge that I had gained over the years being in that space and then applied it to what I was now noticing as a nationwide trend with kids in schools and safety. So that kind of brings us up to current day. And uh, David, you mentioned you know, how you and I kind of came to be in the Great Lakes Behavioral Summit. And I think really it's a testament to the power of relationships and, and that strength in relationships as they grow over time. And you begin to trust people and, and there's a certain amount of safety that's involved with trust that I think, you know, goes hand in hand with the relationship that you and I have developed as colleagues and, and as friends. So I wanted to acknowledge that and thank you for the, the role that you've continued to play and, you know, my life personally and professionally and, uh, again, you didn't mention it, but I'll mention it here. You are our very first Springio Award recipient, and that's an award that's given out to only one person annually, and it's focused on somebody who's done exceptional things in the field of school safety. So I wanted your audience to know that. I know you're too humble to have mentioned that, but uh, certainly worth mentioning. And then, you know, of course, the the links that you go to to bring great content uh, to schools and communities. And you've written a number of articles that have gone out to our community. You, of course, continue to do this podcast and, and video, uh, which I'm sure is reaching millions of people. And and on a topic like this, uh, you know, having good quality information really is in short supply. So I, I thank you for what you do and have done and probably will continue to do for the the uh, the future. So thank you. Joe, I, I appreciate that, and, and my uh, Sprigio Award is within 10 feet of me right now. So, um, I yeah, I, I've been passionate about safety uh, my, my entire life, and when I have the opportunity to meet um, innovators and, and risk takers such, such, as, such as you, it just enriches what I'm able to do. And um, as you indicated, the relationships and, and to build those out. Um, and, and what I found, um, and, and Joe, this is, this is one, one aspect of, of Sprigio, I think, that, that stands out is um, there's, so, there's so much rhetoric in school safety um, out there. And if you have, for example, Sprigio is, is extremely focused and extremely efficient advancing it, it's very uh innovative at what it does but yet you know you're not you're you're not saying hey we just developed a new branch of Spragio that will detect drones and and it'll have this anti-drone gun which will sell you and it's amazing when i go on and i i dissect articles i dissect mainstream articles and and the hype. I mean, one I did uh, for a recent podcast was an article titled "A Vaccine for Mental Health," and the thought was that um, that Columbine could have been presented or prevented by a vaccine for Harris and Klebold that that then they wouldn't have gotten, which isn't true. You know, it's it's just not factual. So, um, and we and I, I see that in companies too. So that's my appreciation also, Joe, to you. And I know when we talk in just a minute here about Westlake, where you scoured the country through your connections to bring in this, this brain trust to really be risk takers. And, and, and where other people are, are, I think, hesitant because of maybe um, the political climate in, in not wanting to put themselves out there, you found people who want to work together from a very diverse background who are going to lead school safety. I mean, let's let's be direct with it. And 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 you're facilitating that. Um and it's it's admirable. 
Um, and I think it, it is it is something I really want to learn more about. I mean, it's it's one of these. It's the Westlake. It's kind of like you know the 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 meeting behind closed doors of what's really happening in in school safety with the greatest minds facilitated by by you and your diverse background. And then I know you also had uh, a, a different uh, person come in and facilitate so you could actually participate in the in the discussions. Um, so, so Joe, what was Westlake and, you know, what, what compelled you to convene the summit of these, these, uh, experts? Thanks. Um, so the Westlake was the first of its kind and, and we kind of informally termed it a gathering, uh, because it was that meeting of the minds as you described it to be. And, over the course of three days, we brought together a group of administrators uh, to really engage in a thoughtful way in, in some of the most relevant issues that were impacting schools, are impacting schools today around this bigger umbrella of school safety. And um, I'll put it in the words of one of the attendees as she left after three days. And I said, so, you know, how was it uh, kind of? half knowing, you know, just based on what I had observed over the course of three days. And she said, honestly, this has been the most powerful professional development opportunity I've ever engaged with. And this is an educator administrator of 20 some years. Uh, so, so when you hear that type of a, a response to a very open-ended question, um, it really sunk in with me the fact that this is a model for bringing people together to talk about things like school safety. And, I'm, you know, there's a handful of other issues that are highly relevant today as well. But giving people a space where they can really focus and share ideas and walk away with new perspectives that um, are going to benefit kids. I mean, that right. That's the outcome. We want everything that we've come up with, that we've created as a group at the Westlake to ultimately benefit kids and teens in schools. And I think that was accomplished, um, particularly in the realm of school safety. How did you pick your, your participants? So throughout the years of you know, working in schools and developing relationships with administrators. And then through my role in Sprigio, being able to go out and meet and talk with administrators from, from all 50 of our States. Um, I got the sense that there was a need for this type of a gathering. And so I started talking the idea around with some of the colleagues that I'm closest with. And um, again, you know, I think the hunch was spot on and they said, yeah, this is something I'd be interested in, in participating. So you know, we had a lot of interest, more than we could ever accommodate. And in the end, when I started having the follow up conversation, I said, this is what we're planning, you know, and it's bring an open mind and the idea that we want to walk away and create some new perspectives on on this big issue. Um, you know, is that something you're up for? And not everybody was up for that, but the group that showed up really did show up in uh, not only a physical way, but in a mental way and were willing to engage, even though they'd come from such diverse backgrounds, rural, urban, suburban, uh, East coast, West coast, public schools, independent. I mean, we had such this amazing cross section, uh, but bound together by this common thread of, we really want to do something that's impactful for kids and teens in this area of school safety. So that ultimately was the main qualifier. So what were some of the, the safety themes that emerged from that group? You know, I think this is something that I'm, see, I'm sure that you've seen, David, just in talking with administrators and what the media pushes out to us is this real focus on what do I do if an active shooter shows up, right? And But you and I both know the probability – of that actually happening is, is minimal, right? right, right. Uh, um, in fact, I was at a conference recently and what the presenter put up a, a pie chart and there was this real thin slice. And then of course the rest of the pie was filled in at a different color. And his question to the audience was, 
one of the pieces of this pie shows the probability of an active shooter showing up at your school. And the other piece of the pie shows the probability of a parent showing up intoxicated to a parent conference, which is which. (laughs) And right away, the group was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure the larger piece of the pie is an intoxicated parent. (laughs) I've seen that happen. So it kind of brought to light this idea that even though there's such uh, a media attention that's been given to active shooter situations, um, you know, and rightfully so, don't get me wrong. I mean, these are intense situations that often involve a loss of life. Uh, but the fact is that they're so minimal in uh, comparison to some of the other events that threaten a student's safety in schools. So to put that into perspective, and I think folks that showed up at the Westlake, they came with that same idea. You know, what do we do if the worst possible happens? versus how do we look at school safety in a much broader way? And I think that was the major shift in mindset that I saw over the course of three days. How about um, leakage detection systems and and threat input systems? I mean, obviously, Sprigio being uh, the leader in that area, um, information coming coming forward and getting put into systems how about discussions that might have centered on that and this group was a little bit forward thinking and by that i mean they wanted to know about things that could potentially become a threat and whether that's a threat to a student's own safety because they've been cutting and now they have suicidal ideation or worst case scenario someone's planning to come to a school as a student with some type of weapon and cause harm to, you know, what, what is still important, but in comparison, uh, not as serious of an incident as a bullying or harassment, right? Or someone's just giving me a hard time. But this group that showed up at the Westlake, they wanted to know about the spectrum of everything that was going to impact a student's ability to feel safe on campus. And they wanted to know about that information ahead of time, which in my experience is more of a prevention mindset versus a response mindset. And I think there's room for both. Uh, But when you have that knowledge up front, it gives you that opportunity to pursue a variety of different potential responses versus now something's happening that I didn't know about before, and now I have limited opportunities in how I'm going to respond. And, and you and I have had this conversation, I'm sure, over the course of time. Uh, but yet that's, that's a new thought process for a lot of administrators. It's a wait-and-see mentality and hope nothing bad happens. The reality is that, yeah, the worst of those situations most likely is not ever going to happen. But what about the stuff that's building, that's growing? There's this gradual undertow uh, that could be leading towards something more significant. And wouldn't it be worth addressing that back here so that we're preventing something up here? And I think that mindset was uh, certainly unique to the group that came because they were all, as I mentioned in the beginning, forward thinking. They want to know about that so that they can prevent something major from occurring. So it's exciting to be with a group of people like that. So what's their next step then with that to try to get information at the earliest onset that something might be brewing, I guess, in, in the realm of uh, uh, potential school safety risk or risk uh, harm to self? Um, did they did they come up with any any early agenda items of, you know, here's Here's where we want to focus on, because as as you've said, you're right on, there's a huge emphasis on reporting data like suspensions and things like that, which are, in my opinion, suspension data is useless because you can, the inter-rater reliability doesn't exist. And I've studied that. And some states, um, I know I had, I had done a video with you in, uh, at the end of 2015 and, uh, just comparing how states will define out terms. Like one state might have 78 ways to define assault. I mean, literally, and then another state might have two. So 
but with, with your group, would at what when they started to have these epiphanies? What what were they? Where was that kind of leading? You know, like uh, the word relationships continued to come up in discussion within the context of uh, we know that there's incredible value in knowing our students, knowing what challenges they face on a daily basis, whether they're physical, academic, social, things that are happening at home with their families. Uh, the more that we know about what our kids are struggling with and the more that we can share that that's important to us to know, the better chance we have to develop a trusting relationship. And then the logic there is if kids trust us, they'll want to share about when things are not quite right when they don't feel safe, when they know about something that might threaten the safety of other students, they'll be more likely to want to share that with us. And whether that that sharing happens through some type of reporting system like what we do, or ultimately the goal is I feel so comfortable with my school counselor, my school administrator, teachers in the classroom, that I can walk up and have that conversation and just say, you know, this is what I heard, or this is what's happening with me right now. Uh, when that happens, then, of course, you can get out in front of things. So I think the realization was let's really focus on how we're building relationships with students. And for middle school administrators in particular that were part of the group, it became even more relevant for them because most middle schools, if you're lucky, you get three years, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Right. Um, if, if not, you only get seventh and eighth. That's a two-year span to get to know kids. You know, they've come in and then all of a sudden they're gone. So they're trying to develop that relationship that is trusting in such a short amount of time is a real challenge. So there was a lot of discussion around, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing to build these relationships ultimately in the service of trusting and building relationships that are going to allow kids to want to talk about what's happening? So what you're saying uh, aligns completely with the 2009 uh, Center for Disease Control report on school connectedness and relationships as being the number one preventive tool against school violence. So, um, and, and yeah, I, I commend that that discussion occurred because um, you mentioned middle school. I had worked with a middle school uh, in the last year on a consultation basis, and they wanted to get the type of information that you're talking about. Um, what they did is they held focus groups with their middle schoolers and and transcribed them and, and went back and, and met. And they said, you know, a lot of this stuff was pretty raw. Uh, it was, the you know, the kids didn't hold anything back about um everything ranging from, you know, personal life experiences to, uh, I don't, uh, I don't like logging on to social media because someone has posted something about me or, or my family, or I feel like I'm in a current, you know, or in a competition. And, and it was the administrator, uh, that I spoke with said it was one of the best things that they did. And when they came back to the kids and said, here's what you told us, and now let's put a plan together. The kids were kind of shocked. They they said, we really didn't expect you to come back. I mean, we 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 expect that this was a one-time, yeah, you're gonna, we're gonna give it to you. And then the typical school administrator thing, just because administrators are bombarded with everything, uh, you get the information and it might get processed, it might not. But they actually came back, met with these kids. And uh, and revealed back to them and, and kind of, you know, themed it out and put together a plan. And they uh, the administrator I, I followed up with um, said it made a world of difference in the culture in the school. It didn't solve necessarily all of the, the issues, the, the direct causes, but it allowed people to talk about the direct causes. And, um, and and then they did start to put into place some things to get at at root causes. Um, and, you know, even, even one thing, um, you know, was, <clears throat> excuse me, that they, uh, you know, some, some students would have the school available to them for hygiene, that they'd be able to come in in the morning and brush their teeth and, and do other things and, and, and some stuff like that. And, 
um, you know, more discreetly. And but it but it was phenomenal because uh, just to, just as you said, it was that voice being heard. And, and like the administrator said, when we came back with that group and sat down, all the jaws dropped of like, hey, what are you doing back here, principal? I mean, we see one, you know. We, Usually for the bad stuff, kind of, and, and again, not to paint principles, but it, it's just because the 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 role traditionally of the principal has been to to be very reactive and not proactive, as you're indicating in the work you're doing. But so, so what did you see as as um, what what were coming up as barriers where where people were saying we we really really like to do this, but wow, this is this is a hurdle, right? So I want to get I want to get on that one because it's such an important issue. A couple of things that came up that I was jotting down. You saw me over here writing in the book uh, as you were talking that I, I wanted to make sure and kind of chime in on. Uh, one is what I heard you talk about is the importance of listening and the impact that active listening can have, particularly working with a group of kids or teens in middle school. Oh. I mean, they're just, they're amazing. It's my it's my favorite point in the spectrum from, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade, because if you get them in the right spot and they know that you're buying in, they're on board. You know, they just want to be validated for who they are as growing into real people, you know, that have ideas that, that have value. And when you recognize and acknowledge that they they're there, they're there with you a hundred percent. So um, kudos to that administrator. It sounds like a future Westlake participant. We'll have to talk afterwards. I want to make sure I get in contact with that. Sure. Um, so that the value that comes with active listening, I think, can never be understated. And then on another level, um, I think everybody that came to the Westlake as a participant had that same attitude. So they were it kind of transcended, you know, what they do throughout their day and became an active part of their process while they were at the Westlake. They're active listeners when they're back at school with students. They're active listeners when they're in a group of their colleagues. So it just worked. Um, the other thing that I heard you say just briefly is this attitude of uh, this is our school community versus we have students and we have uh, faculty. And they're two different groups. It's us and them. Uh, they have their issues and we have our issues and, you know, we kind of, it's a one-sided conversation. Um, but that is dramatically different than this is our community. And I want to know uh, from you, the students, what we can do as a school to create a safer environment. And then it becomes a conversation because you're talking about relationships where there is that listening happening. There's trust that's built and it's a community that falls under the label of a school, but it's a community, which means that there's investment across the board from all the stakeholders. Um, so anyway, I wanted to throw that out. Uh, then, of course, the opposite end of that is, you know, that's all great. That's all well and good. And wouldn't that be wonderful to have a student group, you know, meet with our faculty and staff once a month or once a week or whatever it is. But, you know, David, that, that's a lot of time. And, you know, kids have got classes and there's the scheduling of that is going to be so difficult. And I mean, these are some of the challenges that I think get thrown up uh, when the discussion really when it becomes real. When you start talking about, well, how do you make that happen? Well, it, it, there's no quick Band-Aid approach to this, folks. It's an investment and it does take time and it does take energy. Uh, but people that get it and know the value and have seen the outcomes, they're willing to make the investment. Um, and perhaps, you know, I'll be optimistic and say, perhaps uh, if you haven't seen the benefit, you may not understand the investment or be willing to qualify the investment. But, you know, there again, I have to say, if you're in the business of working with kids and teens and seeing them grow and getting the most out of their experience in schools and out of life, you're in a long-term investment here. So whether you know it or not, you're already investing time. I would argue it's how you invest your time that makes the biggest difference. But I think that that one critical barrier is out there is time. Where do we find the time to do this? Right. And, and my response to that, and, and, and that question comes up, um, you know, for me also is, 
you can do a prioritization matrix. I mean, they're they're pretty easy. You basically compare one thing to another, and it gets a plus or a minus. And there's there's different ways to do it. And and you just say this is going to be a priority. And and not everyone uh, initially or or totally gets on it. I teach courses and teaching a class right now in inclusion of students with special needs. And there are definitely a few people in uh, my class who are not on board with, you know, inclusion philosophically and, and respectfully will will bring forward those discussions. Um, you know, so you, so you work with where it goes. But um, the other part, you know, too, and I think in being a strong administrator is, is uh, it, it's a worn phrase, but it's sometimes you have to join a parade to get where you're going. And at some point, it's not an option anymore. And I think so much of not I, I think, but I know school, so much of school safety and Joe, you 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 know this this too is is it's it's um, quantitative. I mean, it's all numbers it, when it, it all boils down to numbers. It's not qualitative. Now, you shared with me a resource that I am currently using in a different class <laughs> that I'm teaching for aspiring special education directors, and that was the Alexandria, Virginia. Um, pupil services assessment summary document, which was about 30 pages long. And it's a big district. Um, but what they did, though, when when they conducted that is they put a massive emphasis on focus groups and interviews. So it's basically 30 pages where, yes, you have data on, you know, key indicators. And this could have been a report that was 100 to 300 pages, but it was um, key interview um, quotes. It was um, themes that emerged. It was coding, but they really wanted someone to, or a group to come in with a qualitative perspective and sit down and talk to teachers, principals, community members. And, and that's the way, and as you've indicated, and in, in I think what's coming out of what you shared with Westlake is that's the way you learn and that's the way you get vesting. If people feel that they are, they're being heard. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the diversity of the group in terms of where in the U.S. they come from and then the size of their district and the, the group of students that they're serving was so dramatically different in some cases that even though they, but even though they weren't dealing with exactly the same issues, uh, there was still this sense in the group that I started to, to get a feel for that um, even though this may not be happening at our school yet, or it hasn't happened up to now, this could certainly be something that I could see happening just based on my years of experience, you know, having worked with kids. So it was kind of like, you know, this would be in my best interest to really listen and ask some thoughtful questions of those other people in the group that were had experienced a lot of the issues. And I know I'm kind of talking in generalities here, but um, suffice to say, I, I think in this issue of school safety, uh, whether it be you've had firsthand experience with active shooter situation or you've had firsthand experience with a, a student who's talked about committing suicide, um, whether it's any of those ends or anywhere in between, I think there's this growing sense that um, kids are struggling, you know, with a lot of different issues. And unless we can really create a breadth of experience and knowledge uh, that we can apply to an ever-growing need, then we're going to miss something. And we're going to miss something that's going to be big. And we don't want that. You know, that was the sense that I got from the group. So uh, it was interesting to hear them talk about this and, then get a sense from people just looking around the room. Ooh, you know, we we've never had anything like that, but I could see that, you know. So it was it was great to to see people's openness to wanting to listen and not say, well, that doesn't happen at our school, right? Which is which is more, I think, of a more more typical attitude uh, when you bring a group together from varieties of ba- you know backgrounds. It's you know that that would never happen at our school or. Or when they start talking about how they respond uh, to different types of incidents, oh, you know that would never work at our school. 
that type of an attitude. And that was something that just was not a part of the culture of this group that showed up at the Westlake. And it's interesting you mentioned that, Joe, because uh, I tell people, you know, you really can't compare one school to another, even within a, a district that has, let's say, 20 elementaries, and you're trying to compare elementary A to elementary B. I'm like, you can't do it. And I've, I've tried to do it statistically, um, you know, in, in, my, uh, in my dissertation and do it through quantitative and qualitative and literally, you know, immerse myself. In it. And here, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, you look at there's federal numbers that come out. Well, those are those are completely <laughs> inaccurate because, again, inter-rate reliability, principal A is going to do things different than B versus C. Plus, you have different staff and community and the facilities themselves. There's just too many, too many variables. Um, so what 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 was your your kind of shock moment of what was scaring people? What what were people? What hit you that you totally didn't expect? Mm. Oh, such a great question. I, I think it's the fear of the unknown, right? It's the game that a lot of us play. And I remember being in the schools, you know, as, as a teacher and as an administrator, and you're constantly in this mode of trying to think of every potential scenario and then trying to think of every potential response to that scenario. And it wasn't until I got away from schools, and I don't know if this is your experience as well, David. We've never really talked about this, but um, the realization that playing the what-if game, you know, what if this happens, and what if this happens, and what if then, it just spins you around to the point where um, you're afraid to make decisions in the moment that, that might alter the course of, of where you could go. Right. And, and so I think there's that was still that attitude within the group that, you know, what if this, what if that, what if that, that was the initial kind of feeling that I had from the group when we started talking about the issues that the initial entree into the discussion was still kind of a very conservative and, um, yeah, this is all well and good discussion, but what if, right? And what I saw change, and it happened pretty early on in the first day, was this willingness to let go of that, that fear of the unknown, and start to shift the thinking into uh, what can we do now? What can we do now that is going to create more of a foundational sense of support for our kids so that we don't have to worry about every single situation that could happen. What if we spend all of our time, energy and effort right now thinking about and creating that foundational level of support? What would that change about the way we approach every day when kids show up at the school? So that moment when that happened, that change in mindset, it, it launched the group on a completely different trajectory. It allowed them to start thinking in very unique and open ways that generated new perspectives on how you approach school safety versus, you know, the, and that it was the difference, David, between, you know, we're going to think of every potential scenario that could come up right. and a response to that to what can we do as a community that's going to better prepare us to think about school safety. So that that was a unique and really powerful moment that, like I said, it came early on uh, and it was a complete shift in mindset. So powerful. What you're describing, Joe, is actually quite different than the government documents that are out there on how to plan for school safety, because they tend to lead you down every contingency possible, which isn't the way things will ever play out. I have an article. Uh, that I wrote for the uh, School Business Affairs Journal International. It'll be published in February. So next week it comes out. And I wrote it in October. Actually, um, it's it's an excerpt from the book I'm writing for Roman and Littlefield called Lessons of Lower Manhattan. And it's relevant right now to 
take a, a minute or two to talk about that because it fits in with what you're saying. Um, on September 11, 2001, when uh, you know the Twin Towers were uh, attacked, there were 500,000 people who were rushing um, to get off of Lower Manhattan. Well, they had closed the bridges, and the only way you could get off was by boat. So Admiral Loy of the Coast Guard, and of course, you know, it's a regular day, so they maybe have like six boats <coughs> out, and and, uh, and he realizes, he's, he's looking, and it's literally, you know, a, a block deep of, of people along the shoreline, as far as you can see, and growing, um, that he has to do something. And there, there's no book, there's no script to go to. So he gets on his radio and he puts out an all call and he said, anybody out there with a boat, you know, this is come to this location and, you know, do what you need to do to rescue people. And that, that was basically it. It was because what he knew is that there's it's, it's Carl Weichs is um, a researcher, talks about sense making, but we know what to do. It, in in situations it's teaching people to recognize situations there's also um a, a presenter corey miller who had trained in uh prisons trained you know new prison guards on how to identify and, and respond to things and and trust your gut feeling your gut reaction which is eight thousand times faster than trying to process you know through a frontal lobe but coming back to lessons of lower manhattan so you have, you know, tour boats, fishing boats, people who have never trained before. They have no idea. The context is changing. You don't know if there's more. You don't know if the harbor's mined. You don't know if there's more planes coming in. And yet people work together. They realize in the moment things like we can take bed sheets off of some of these boats, tie them up, take a spray can and write like Hoboken. So that's the destination. People were were orderly and how they would, would assemble themselves, um, you know, in getting onto the boats. And there was actually a lady who was, was blind, and some Wall Street brokers were carrying her overhead and then also her seeing eye dog and put her on a boat. So in nine hours, they rescued 500,000 people off of lower Manhattan. And during... Um, it was in 1975 uh, in Saigon, they had a rescue that was, was somewhat similar on a smaller scale uh, when they were evacuating Saigon. And they, um, the, the commanders of the, of the Navy boats were saying, we don't have room for all the people who are coming on. So the commander said, push the helicopters over the sides. And there's actually pictures of this. You can you know, Google it, Operation Frequent Wind. And everybody involved in that received uh, three separate commendations for, uh, you know, sharp thinking and preserving of life in the moment. And you can even go all the way back to World War II Dunkirk, which was more of civilians helping um, in a, a boat type rescue. But um, what you said, and I think people realize this on is innately, it's giving people it's saying, you know, you're going to evaluate the situation. You're going to evaluate the, con the context and the situation and act in the best interest of the student. And that will, you'll never know what that is until that happens. You will never be able to pr predict what your contingency, what, what your context and your situation is. And I also, you know, remind people that there were 60 legal cases that were reviewed that hinged on the ident the term best interests of the student. Um, and in all of those cases, the actions of the people involved, whether it be the administrator or the teacher, were all vindicated because they were acting in the best interests of the student. So um, my article that comes out talks about how, uh, you know, of course you need to plan for things like lockdowns. It would be, you'd be negligent to not do that in, in fire drills and things like that, but you need to plan for about eight minutes of anything, because after that, the context and situation will never match anything that you've scripted out. And the military spent mil millions upon millions in the 70s and 80s. There was a researcher, David Klein, um, I think he was out in California, 
Uh, you can probably find him. I think he has the, the nicest house out there because he is a multi-million dollar grant. Um, but, you know, he basically, you know, the conclusion was you need to train people to believe in their instinct, instincts and believe in their training and to look, to take. So, so Joe, we have these things, um, and, and I don't want to talk too much here, but we have these things of, um, of uh, run, um, run, what is it, hide and fight, different mottos that people have. But I always tell people you're missing the one thing. The one thing is right away is evaluate. You take the one to two seconds to 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 gather your senses and to look at the context and situation around you, so you're not overlooking an obvious an obvious solution that would preserve your life and the lives of others. So you have an upcoming Westlake conference. Is there there's a there's a reconvening? There is going to be a reconvening. Well, a new convening. It'll be a new group of attendees, but that's going to be uh, May 10, 11, and 12. Same location, Southern California, Westlake. Westlake, California. That's why we call it the Westlake. Um, but it just seemed like the name fit as well. So we're going to, we decided we, why not just keep it there? It was such a great success the first time around. Uh, so it'll be, like I said, a completely new group. We're accepting applications from folks that are interested uh this westlake is going to be slightly slightly different in terms of um the group itself what we heard from the last group of attendees was that uh the role of the assistant principal is something that's quite unique and and even if you dig even a little bit deeper and you look at the role of the assistant principal in many of our nation's middle schools, now you get into something that's very rich in terms of the types of issues that they're responding to, uh, particularly in larger middle schools where the APs are responding to a lot of the day-to-day with respect to behavior, discipline, challenges that kids are having socially, um, that because of that intense focus that wouldn't it be worthwhile, what we heard from the group was, wouldn't it be worthwhile if we had a gathering that focused specifically on the needs of that group? So that is what we're going to try. We feel like, you know, why not, right? We're always kind of in that, in that sense of uh, the serendipity of the moment and what shows up when you create a space for something that people have identified as being important. So we said, you know, we're going to take the lead from the first group and and design it in this way. So we are actively uh, accepting, as I said, applications. And you can find that online on our website, which is sprigio.com slash Westlake, W-E-S-T-L-A-K-E. And uh, the application is right there, as well as a rundown of you know, what happens when you're there and all the logisticals. Uh, that go along with it. But uh, we are in the planning process now and fully intending that we'll get more than we can possibly accommodate, which is which is okay because it means that we can set up another gathering for the future uh, as long as we know that there's interest there. And, you know, and who knows what this group will come away with. But I think what one of the things that you said just a moment ago really stuck with me, David, which is how can we bring what the group is is creating over the course of these three days to a much larger audience. So that, I think, different than what you think of happens at a regular conference, which is you show up, you listen to a lot of great presentations, you walk away with a laundry list of ideas, or at least I know that I do, and you leave the conference feeling energized and enthusiastic only to come back to your day-to-day and realize that you have a whole separate set of priorities that now need to take precedence. And and all those great ideas and that energy gets left behind. So what we tried to do at the Westlake is kind of start the ball rolling, if you will, while they're there. So this first group, day three of the gathering, they were already actively creating content and documents and next steps and a plan for follow-up so that, that the intention was so that that energy and enthusiasm didn't disappear when they returned home. And uh, and it's working. The group is, has stayed together. They meet periodically. They talk via email. I'm sure some of them are talking by phone. But I think that's the model that we're going to continue to weave into this. 
but then try to bring again what they've created to the much larger community of, of middle schools, elementary, high schools, wherever it's relevant on this issue. As I as I bring this more toward a close, um, I was I was involved. Uh, I serve as an expert legal witness uh, across the country, and I'm seeing a trend of students with uh, disabilities, particularly autism, intellectual disabilities. Um, litigation coming forward if that student has been the victim of bullying, harassment, harm to self, suicide, uh, saying uh, the argument from the, the plaintiff, and in those cases, I, I, I am involved with the, the plaintiffs. If you have a student with an intellectual disability, they're not going to understand what bullying is. Uh, the same as someone that does not have an intellectual disability. Also, then, uh, how to express their feelings, how to access a threat reporting system. Some schools have uh, threat reporting systems, which you know range from tell an adult, but then uh, it's not very specific on how how to do that. Kids are never told. And other ones have you know complete this five page form, which is really the investigation itself. And in a in a case I was involved in, um, that really became the crux of the entire case with a student. And I made the the argument of saying one, um, there was no active effort to educate um, students with disabilities about um, what is bullying, what is not bullying, what is harassment. Uh, when they experience it, when they observe it, and the second part was how to how to report that. And I went I went a step further, which no one is doing. And and I said, you know, this should actually be part of an IEP. And maybe at some point I'll write a, a guide or do something with that. But I said, nobody puts this in as an IEP goal. And, and just what are your your thoughts about that? I'm I'm curious. Yeah, not enough. It's not coming to our attention um, in a way that that is, I think, accurate with respect to the number of students who it's impacting. So I, I guess I say that to mean we're not getting that type of request from school districts uh, often enough. You know, from what you and I have talked about in the past and really – the, the number of students who are impacted because they don't have the tools to be able to report uh, because they haven't been given that training, that, that is not synonymous with um, the number of schools who are really requesting that information. So I think there's an underserved need there. I think the role that we're trying to play is, of course, one of education, you know, and being able to offer professional articles like what you've written and continue to do that will open the door for a lot of schools and kind of raise awareness that this is an issue that, uh, you know, you can't hope will be addressed in just in a very passive way. It, it requires active participation on the part of uh, teachers and administrators to equip kids with the right tools so that they understand what's happening in their world. Um, so I think part of our role, as I see it, as the CEO, is to work with the schools that are part of our community, uh, you know, which is now growing and growing, but, you know, over 2,500 schools across 28 different states. But so it gives us a, a rather large community to work within. But the responsibility, I think, at least that I feel, is to help to continue to educate and bring resources that are highly relevant, that again, that fit within our vision, which is kids should feel safe when they show up at school every day. And that's all kids, uh, regardless of the ability that they bring to the table. So, Right. Well, Joe, I, I uh, you know, I, I think we've had an extremely rich conversation and, and I am a big advocate of that, uh, that 2009 CDC report um, there isn't a, a more current version that's come out and it was very concise, but 
it's it's almost like you've just rewritten it in the words that you're you're sharing because it makes sense um to go to the culture and the relationship building and kids feeling safe because then kids are going to come forward with information and um you're right when you talk about prioritizing in what your end goal is yeah that that's your end goal i i, I think one time you and i talked about a, a district that had a safety plan and one of the sections in the safety plan was what would happen if an airplane fell out of the sky and landed on our school and it wasn't <laughs> like next to an airport and it's like well you know, you, you get to be a mile wide and an inch deep when you do stuff like like that. And you're really losing the focus on, on students and empowering students to feel comfortable with bringing information forward. As I've looked at, um, I'll tell you, in every, in every legal case I've been involved in, in the research I've done, the leakage and the residue exists everywhere, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't come forward. And I think it doesn't come forward because of what you've said. Um, the, the building of the school community, uh, that needs to be the priority. And a lot of uh, schools already do that, and administrators. But I mean, just globally to reshift how we look at education and front load. One of the things I've said um, if if I if I was able to rewrite policy, I'd get rid of suspensions altogether because I think it's useless. I think it's useless work. I I would put it toward the front as where you're talking about and what what you know is the discussion that came from the Westlake and let's put our efforts in the front. And if a, if a, if what are we doing to get kids connected to kids and hear the voice of kids and kids feeling safe? That's not documented anywhere. It's not reported. It's not mandated by OCR. And until we also get to the point where we measure these things on a state and national level, now I've talked about issues with statistics and things, but uh, but I, I am gonna I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, this is going to be shared on the. 405 Media out of Los Angeles. Um, so this will make its way all around the world and then we'll be we'll be archived out. Um, but January 30th, Monday at one o'clock Pacific time, Joe, out in California, uh, this will be this will be aired. And we do have a, a growing following. Um, and it's amazing uh, this this show and the message, I think. There are so many people eager for what we've talked about today and, and just for safety information, which is empirically based. I dissect headlines, again, that that I think are just giving people the, the wrong impression. And it makes it difficult for principals and leaders to do their job when there's an article saying bulletproof glass is the answer, you know, or, the, or this school has installed that. And people come in and say, and and you and I both know um, what school connectedness will do is ten thousand times more statistically powerful than you know two inch thick bulletproof glass around a school. So uh, I appreciate the work that you've done, Joe. I always have. I think the Westlake is a tremendous step forward for Sprigio. Uh, the fact that it's growing um, is just a testament to the value and the need for a type of conference like Westlake, which is sensible and isn't trying to further push, I think, an agenda which has been out there of just doing these mechanical things and 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 kind of scaring people versus having a, a real discussion. So I, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's uh, you know, as I started out by saying it's always a pleasure to get to spend some time with you. And this certainly has been no different. It's uh, it's always fantastic. There's the richness of talking about a topic like this that, uh, that you and I are both so passionate about. And then knowing that the audience out there who's ever listening, watching this, is going to be able to benefit from what we've shared, all again in the service of kids. So 
Uh, it's always a pleasure to do that. Please don't hesitate to call on me. Anyone who's listening or watching this, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Anything that I can do uh, or that Spurgio can do to help in that regard, uh, we, we will certainly step forward and do that.